Section 9 The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner Written by Himself by James Hogg This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It was not many days till a caddy came with a large parcel to Mrs. Logan's house, which parcel he delivered into her hands, accompanied with a sealed note, containing an inventory of the articles, and a request to know if the unfortunate Arabella Calvert would be admitted to converse with Mrs. Logan. Never was there a woman so much overjoyed as Mrs. Logan was at this message. She returned compliments, would be most happy to see her, and no article of the parcel should be looked at or touched till her arrival. It was not long till she made her appearance, dressed in somewhat better style than she had yet seen her, delivered her over the greater part of the stolen property, besides many things that either never had belonged to Mrs. Logan or that she thought proper to deny in order that the other might retain them. The tale that she told of her misfortunes was of the most distressing nature, and was enough to stir up all the tender as well as abhorrent feelings in the bosom of humanity. She had suffered every depredation in fame, fortune, and person. She had been imprisoned, she had been scourged and branded as an impostor, and all on account of her resolute and unmoving fidelity and truth to several of the very worst of men, every one of whom had abandoned her to utter destitution and shame. But this story we cannot enter on at present, as it would perhaps mar the thread of our story, as much as it did the anxious anticipations of Mrs. Logan who sat pining and longing for the relation that follows. Now, I know, Mrs. Logan, that you are expecting a detail of the circumstances relating to the death of Mr. George Cowain, and in gratitude for your unbounded generosity and disinterestedness, I will tell you all that I know, although, for causes that will appear obvious to you, I had determined never in life to divulge one circumstance of it. I can tell you, however, that you will be disappointed, for it was not the gentleman who was accused, found guilty, and would have suffered the utmost penalty of the law had he not made his escape. It was not he, I say, who slew your young master, nor had he any hand in it. I never thought he had. But pray, how do you come to know this? You shall hear. I had been abandoned in York by an artful and consummate fiend, and found guilty of being art and part concerned in the most heinous atrocities, and in his place suffered what I yet shudder to think of I was banished the county, begged my way with my poor outcast child up to Edinburgh, and was there obliged, for the second time in my life, to betake myself 
to the most degrading of all means to support two wretched lives. I hired a dress and betook me, shivering to the high street, too well aware that my form and appearance would soon draw me suitors in now at that throng and intemperate time of the Parliament. On my very first stepping out to the street, a party of young gentlemen was passing. I heard by the noise they made and the tenor of their speech that they were more than mellow, and so I resolved to keep near them in order, if possible, to make some of them my prey. But just as one of them began to eye me, I was rudely thrust into a narrow close by one of the guardsmen. I had heard to what house the party was bound, for the men were talking exceedingly loud and making no secret of it. So I hasted down the close and round below to the one where their rendezvous was to be. But I was too late. They were all housed and the door bolted. I resolved to wait, thinking they could not all stay long. But I was perishing with famine and was like to fall down. The moon shone as bright as day, and I perceived, by a sign at the bottom of the close, that there was a small tavern of a certain description up two stairs there. I went up and called, telling the mistress of the house my plan. She approved of it mainly, and offered me her best apartment, provided I could get one of these noble mates to accompany me. She abused Lucky Suds, as she called her, at the inn where the party was, envying her huge profits, no doubt, and giving me afterwards something to drink for which I really felt exceedingly grateful in my need. I stepped downstairs in order to be on the alert. The moment that I reached the ground, the door of Lucky Sud's house opened and shut, and down came the Honorable Thomas Drummond, with hasty and impassioned strides his sword rattling at his heel. I accosted him in a soft and soothing tone. He was taken with my address, for he instantly stood still and gazed intently at me, then at the place, and then at me again. I beckoned him to follow me, which he did without further ceremony, and we soon found ourselves together in the best room of the house where everything was wretched, he still looked about him and at me, but all this while he had never spoken a word. At length, I asked if he would take any refreshments. If you please, said he. I asked what he would have, but he only answered, Whatever you choose, madam. If he was a taken with my address, I was much more taken with his, for he was a complete gentleman, and a gentleman will ever act as one. At length, he began as follows. I am utterly at a loss to account for this adventure, madam. It seems to me like enchantment, and I can hardly believe my senses. An English lady, I judge, and one who from her manner and address should belong to the first class of society, in such a place as this, is indeed a matter of wonder to me. At the foot of a close in Edinburgh, and at this time of the night. 
Surely it must have been no common reverse of fortune that reduced you to this. I wept, or pretended to do so, on which he added, Pray, madam, take heart. Tell me what has befallen you. And if I can do anything for you, in restoring you to your country or your friends, you shall command my interest. I had great need of a friend then, and I thought now was the time to secure one. So I began and told him the moving tale I have told you. But I soon perceived that I had kept by the naked truth too unvarnishedly, and thereby quite overshot my mark. When he learned that he was sitting in a wretched corner of an irregular house with a felon, who had so lately been scourged and banished as a swindler and impostor, his modest nature took the alarm, and he was shocked instead of being moved with pity. His eye fixed on some of the casual stripes on my arm, and from that moment he became restless and impatient to be gone. I tried some gentle arts to retain him, but in vain. So after paying both the landlady and me for pleasures he had neither tasted nor asked, he took his leave. I showed him downstairs, and just as he turned the corner of the next land, a man came rushing violently by him, exchanged looks with him, and came running up to me. He appeared in great agitation, and was quite out of breath, and taking my hand in his, we ran upstairs together without speaking, and were instantly in the apartment I had left, where a stope of wine still stood untasted. Ah, this is fortunate, said my new spark, and helped himself. In the meanwhile, as our apartment was a corner one, and looked both east and north, I ran to the eastern casement to look after Drummond. Now, note me well. I saw him going eastward in his tartans and bonnet, and the gilded hilt of his claymore glittering in the moon. And at the very same time, I saw two men, the one in black, and the other likewise in tartans, coming towards the steps from the opposite bank, by the foot of the lock. And I saw Drummond and they eyeing each other as they passed. I kept view of him till he vanished towards Leith Wind, and by that time the two strangers had come close up under our window. This is what I wish you to pay particular attention to. I had only lost sight of Drummond, who had given me his name and address, for the short space of time that we took in running up one pair of short stairs. And during that space he had halted a moment, for, when I got my eye on him again, he had not crossed the mouth of the next entry, nor proceeded above ten or twelve paces, and at the same time I saw the two men coming down the bank on the opposite side of the lock, at about three hundred paces distance. Both he and they were distinctly in my view, and never within speech of each other, until he vanished into one of the winds leading towards the bottom of the high street, at which precise time the two strangers came below my window, so that it was quite clear he neither could be one of them 
nor have any communication with them. Yet mark me again, for of all things I have ever seen, this was the most singular. When I looked down at the two strangers, one of them was extremely like Drummond. So like was he that there was not one item in dress, form, feature, nor voice by which I could distinguish the one from the other. I was certain it was not he, because I had seen the one going and the other approaching at the same time, and my impression at the moment was that I looked upon some spirit or demon in his likeness. I felt a chillness creep all around my heart. My knees tottered, and withdrawing my head from the open casement that lay in the dark shade, I said to the man who was with me, Good God, what is this? What is it, my dear, said he, as much alarmed as I was. As I live, there stands an apparition, said I. He was not so much afraid when he heard me say so, and peeping cautiously out, he looked and listened a while, and then, drawing back, he said in a whisper, They are both living men, and one of them is he I passed at the corner. That he is not, said I emphatically. To that I will make oath. He smiled and shook his head, and then added, I never then saw a man before whom I could not know again, particularly if he was the very last I had seen. But what matters it whether it be or not, as it is no concern of ours? Let us sit down and enjoy ourselves. But it does matter a very great deal with me, sir, said I. Bless me, my head is giddy, my breath quite gone, and I feel as if I were surrounded with fiends. Who are you, sir? You shall know that ere we two part, my love, said he. I cannot conceive why the return of this young gentleman to the spot he so lately left should decompose you. I suppose he got a glance of you as he passed, and has returned to look after you, and that is the whole secret of the matter. If you will be so civil as to walk out and join him then, it will oblige me hugely, said I, for I never in my life experienced such boding apprehensions of evil company. I cannot conceive how you should come up here without asking my permission. Will it please you to be gone, sir? I was within an ace of prevailing. He took out his purse. I need not say more. I was bribed to let him remain. Ah, had I kept my frail resolution of dismissing him at that moment, what a world of shame and misery had been invited. But that, though uppermost still in my mind, has nothing to do here. When I peeped over again, the two men were disputing in a whisper, the one of them in violent agitation and terror, and the other upbraiding him and urging him on to some desperate act. At length I heard the young man in the highland garb say indignantly, Hush, recreant! It is God's work which you are commissioned to execute, and it must be done. But if you positively decline it, I will do it myself, 
and do you beware of the consequences. Oh, I will, I will, cried the other in black clothes, in a wretched, beseeching tone. You shall instruct me in this, as in all things else. I thought all this while I was closely concealed from them, and wondered not a little when he and Tartans gave me a sly nod, as much as to say, what do you think of this, or take note of what you see, or something to that effect, from which I perceived that, whatever he was about, he did not wish it to be kept a secret. For all that, I was impressed with a terror and anxiety that I could not overcome but it only made me mark every event with the more intense curiosity. The Highlander, whom I still could not help regarding as the evil genius of Thomas Drummond, performed every action as with the quickness of thought. He concealed the youth in black in a narrow entry a little to the westward of my windows, and as he was leading him across the moonlit green by the shoulder, I perceived for the first time that both of them were armed with rapiers. He pushed him without resistance into the dark shaded close, made another signal to me, and hasted up the close to Lucky Sutter's door. The city and the morning were so still that I heard every word that was uttered on putting my head out a little. He knocked at the door sharply, and after waiting a considerable space, the bolt was drawn, and the door, as I conceived, edged up as far as the massy chain would let it. Is young Dollcastle still in the house? said he sharply. I did not hear the answer, but I heard him say shortly after, If he is, pray tell him to speak with me for a few minutes. He then withdrew from the door and came slowly down the close in a lingering manner, looking oft behind him. Dull Castle came out, advanced a few steps after him, and then stood still, as if hesitating whether or not he should call out a friend to accompany him. And that instant the door behind him was closed, chained, and the iron bolt drawn. On hearing of which, he followed his adversary without further hesitation. As he passed below my window, I heard him say, I beseech you, Tom, let us do nothing in this matter rashly. But I could not hear the answer of the other, who had turned the corner. I roused up my drowsy companion, who was leaning on the bed, and we both looked together from the north window. We were in the shade, but the moon shone full on the two young gentlemen. Young Dull Castle was visibly the worse of liquor, and his back being turned towards us, he said something to the other which I could not make out, although he spoke a considerable time, and from his tones and gestures appeared to be reasoning. When he had done, the tall young man in the tartans drew his sword, and his face being straight to us, we heard him say distinctly, No more words about it, George, if you please. But if you be a man, as I take you to be, draw your sword, and let us settle it here. Dalcastle drew his sword, without changing his attitude. But he spoke with more warmth, for we heard his words. 
Think you that I fear you, Tom? Be assured, sir. I would not fear ten of the best of your name at each other's backs. All that I want is to have friends with us to see fair play. For if you close with me, you are a dead man. The other stormed at these words. You are a braggart, sir, cried he. A wretch! A blot on the cheek of nature! A blight on the Christian world! A reprobate! I'll have your soul, sir! You must play at tennis and put down elect brethren in another world tomorrow. As he said this, he brandished his rapier, exciting Dull Castle to offense. He gained his point. The latter, who had previously drawn, advanced upon his vaporing and licentious antagonist, and a fierce combat ensued. My companion was delighted beyond measure, and I could not keep him from exclaiming, loud enough to have been heard, That's grand! That's excellent! For me, my heart quaked like an aspen. Young Dalcastle either had a decided advantage over his adversary, or else the other thought proper to let him have it, for he shifted and swore and flitted from Dalcastle's thrust like a shadow, uttering oftentimes a sarcastic laugh that seemed to provoke the other beyond all bearing. At one time, he would spring away to a great distance, then advance again on young Dalcastle with the swiftness of lightning. But that young hero always stood his ground and repelled the attack. He never gave way, although they fought nearly twice round the bleaching green, which you know is not a very small one. At length, they fought close up to the mouth of the dark entry where the fellow in black stood all this while concealed. And then the combatant in tartans closed with his antagonist, or pretended to do so. But the moment they began to grapple, he wheeled about, turning Colwain's back towards the entry, and then cried out, Ha! Hell has it, my friend! My friend! That moment, the fellow in black rushed from his cover with his drawn rapier and gave the brave young Dalcastle two deadly wounds in the back, as quick as arm could thrust, both of which I thought pierced through his body. He fell, and rolling himself on his back, he perceived who it was that had slain him thus foully, and said, with a dying emphasis, which I never heard equaled, Oh, dog of hell, it is you who has done this. He articulated some more, which I could not hear from other sounds, for the moment that the man in black inflicted the deadly wound, my companion called out, That's unfair, you rip! That's damnable! To strike a brave fellow behind! One at a time, you cowards! Etc to all which the unnatural fiend in the tartans answered with a loud exulting laugh. And then, taking the poor paralyzed murderer by the bow of the arm, he hurried him in the dark entry once more, where I lost sight of them forever. End of Section 9